G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. How you going today? Good, thanks, Rowan. Good to be with you. Good to be with you as always. Now, I'm excited for today's episode, which we've called The Snakiness of Psychopaths. And it's a little bit of a follow-up to last week's episode, which we talked about narcissism. And so we're going to be talking about psychopaths and psychopathy today. So, Dad, do you want to give us a bit of a brief rundown? What are we going to be chatting about today? Okay, well, psychopathy or tendency to act like a psychopath, that's maybe more common in everyday life than we'd often think of. Like when we think of psychopaths, we might think of Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs, or we might think of a serial killer, or someone who engages in you know, really criminal acts. But actually, many psychopaths will show up in different settings in life. It could be settings in relationships where there's some severe control and domestic violence. It might be in leadership even. Sadly, I think we have an example in America at the moment with Donald Trump having many signs of psychopathy following on from the narcissism that we talked about last week. But also in the business and work area, if it might be 1% of people in the population show clear signs of psychopathy. Some things suggest that it might even be a few percent in top-level executives, for example, because psychopaths often look to get on top in different ways. They're really motivated to gain reward, so they're going to tend to go for top leadership or management positions, and it might even be a few percent. We don't know exactly, but some of what we talk about today will come from a book, Snakes in Suits, by Paul Babiak and Robert Hare. Now, Snakes in Suits tells a bit of a story, doesn't it? It's the notion that people might look like they're in the role and they play the part and they might present really well, but actually they might be quite deceitful and undermining and antisocial in their behaviour. Well, it was interesting having a bit of a chat to you about this during the week because, look, I must admit, as someone who, you know, not psychologically trained myself, my perception of psychopaths was more to do with this idea of a serial killer or or that criminal side of things. And one thing that I find really interesting about this area is that if we look at podcasts, for example, true crime is the number one genre for podcasts in terms of popularity. And I believe also books as well in terms of fiction books, true crime, again, is the number one popular genre. So we seem to have a bit of a fascination with the psychology of the people who commit these horrible acts in many ways. But as we were talking about it during the week and even the book Snakes in Suits referring a lot more to the everyday type of psychopath which I'm looking forward to learning a little bit more about today because as I said I didn't necessarily realise that they were so prevalent. Yes and I suppose in terms of books and movies and podcasts and all the rest of it like what people are often interested in is what's on the edge of human experience. And psychopaths tend to be thrill-seekers. They tend to take risks in certain areas. Also, they might be quite grandiose and have grand plans, whether they be grand criminal plans or looking to do their equivalent of take over the world kind of thing. We think of the James Bond kind of villains trying to take over the world. Well, in terms of their particular work world or family world, or the circumstances that people are in, psychopaths will tend to show some of these very controlling, deceitful, undermining kind of behaviours, impulsive kind of behaviours, 
all out for their own ends, all out for themselves rather than considering others. So what actually is a psychopath? Because as we spoke about, we're not necessarily just talking about that criminal side of things. So where do they show up more in everyday life? Okay, well, I think it's looking at the four different areas that represent psychopathic behaviour. And the four areas are like an interpersonal side of things, affectively or emotionally, in their lifestyle, how they tend to act, and then with antisocial behaviour. So in terms of their interpersonal ways of relating to others, they tend to be somewhat grandiose or grand in their goals, but also a bit superficial. They might come across as too good to be true. And they often take people in initially because of their charm. But in terms of their emotions, they don't process emotions in the same way that other people do in that they tend to lack empathy and they lack remorse. Rather than appreciating how other people feel through a kind of emotional empathy, it's more they figure out what other people react to, how they can push their buttons or how they can pull their strings or how they can, in a sense, use people based on people's fears or skills or values. That They learn what makes people tick and then influence them that way. But when they deceive people that way, no empathy or, or remorse. In their lifestyle, they tend to be quite impulsive and irresponsible. So even though they end up in sometimes in top positions, they don't do the laborious long-term work that a number of people do to pursue long-term goals. They're more looking at an easier way of getting some payoff or gain for themselves. And so they often are using other people in that way. So they're somewhat parasitic in their lifestyle. Then in terms of their behaviour, they're often somewhat antisocial, and that can show up as, say, poor anger control, being quite impulsive in different ways, acting in ways that we wouldn't expect from someone in that particular position. They might go into a rage quite easily, and then just moments afterwards seem completely normal, but there's an impulsivity and often anger associated with that, and often a trail of antisocial behaviour. And it seems to me from reading a little bit about this during the week and hearing some accounts of people who've dealt with psychopaths in certain different ways, there seems to be that notion that the people around them have to walk on eggshells a little bit because they're so single-minded, as you say, potentially for grandiose plans. They've got such big plans that if you're getting in the way of their plans in any sort of way, they're going to steamroll over the top of you. So I wonder if that's something that we can start to look at as how, for example, psychopaths show up a little bit in everyday life a little bit more because that notion of having to walk on eggshells around people is a lot more relatable, I find, than thinking of the, for example, serial killer psychopath. Yes, well, walking on eggshells, that would be a sign that could come up in this situation if you're dealing with a psychopath, but it partly depends on what your relationship is with them at the time. So if we start off recognising that what a psychopath is on about is, well, they're out for themselves, they're out for money or power or status or something which is a great advantage to them and they're going to try to get it the easiest way they can and use other people to get it. So one of the first ways we're likely to encounter psychopathic behaviour is actually we'll encounter someone being very charming. 
they'll present really well, they'll say things that engaging us in a certain way, they might seem to show a particular interest in us in a certain way, they might even tell a bit of a sob story about their earlier life that makes it sound like they're confiding in us in a way that leads us to feel like we trust them more and we're more likely to confide things ourselves. In other words, they're starting off gauging a person and sussing them out and trying to be on a positive side with them and learning what strings to pull or what buttons to push, what, in other words, what might manipulate us. So at first they might appear as charming. Now, if they end up as a competitor of ours, then we might notice more, like to our face, they might act friendly enough or whatever, but we might start to get a sense that they're acting a little bit inconsistently and behind the scenes we might get a hint that they're saying some things that are critical about us or we might feel a little bit undermined in certain ways. If we've got something that they want, they might be charming but we might feel a little bit used. For example, they might work with co-workers but take credit for something that a co-worker has done. Or they'll try and get close to someone to get information from them because the person might be, for example, a secretary working at a place in an office where they've got information about other staff. So they're trying to get info from that person so they kind of get closer to them that way. If they have a boss or a superior, they might be sucking up to them because they partly get promotions from looking at certain relationships they think will be strategic and charm that person. So they might suck up to that person. But if someone's of no use to them, they're kind of like to the side. They're the people who tend to pick up psychopathic behaviour the quickest because in being not so much used to the psychopath, the psychopath won't try and charm them so much. They'll like ignore them or treat them a little bit meanly or, or brusquely or something like that. And then those are the people who sometimes pick up the inconsistencies in someone's behaviour where they're acting one way in one situation, a different way with other people, and people think, oh, there's something a bit sneaky, there's something a bit snaky about them. And that's a clue that way. But when people have to walk on eggshells, it might be if they're a subordinate. Because psychopaths, if they're in a position of control over others, they can either micromanage or be very critical. For example, with staff, they ball them out in front of other people without proper justification. And that's where it becomes especially relevant also in a psychology practice because we see a number of people who've experienced very harsh harassment and bullying and sometimes there might be a conflict in the workplace that the person might experience as bullying in a certain way. But when it's part of a psychopathic pattern, there's also deception, lies, over-control in different ways, belittling, blame, setting staff against each other. And one of the ways it shows up in a workplace is lots of turmoil. Many people leaving the organisation people being too afraid to speak up because of being bullied in certain ways. And I must admit, having worked in psychiatric hospitals, there are a couple of occasions when I think that there was a senior leader who showed this psychopathic behaviour and it created no end of turmoil in the workplace with lots of people leaving and someone who came in and did a review and actually one person was removed from their position and the statement was made, that that person's behaviour had done a lot of damage to many staff. That's beyond workplace general conflict. That's more indicative of psychopathy. So why is it that 
people who are psychopaths act differently in this way because it seems to me that there's an element of this thinking which is so kind of short-term thinking. It's not looking ahead and thinking, all right, well, you know, five or ten years down the track, how do I want to be seen and what do I want my relationship with everyone to be in order to potentially be able to collaborate on certain things? So why is it that they don't apply that approach? Well, the main thing is because people are on about the goals that they're after in the easiest way possible. They're not so much concerned about their relationship with other people at a deeper level because they basically lack empathy. They lack emotional empathy. The kind of understanding that they have of other people is more a cognitive understanding. They have a highly developed level of understanding of what motivates other people what other people respond to, what they're interested in, what kind of behaviour they respond to in certain ways. And they'll adjust their behaviour accordingly to different people. So again, they're after money, they're after power, they're after status. So if they're after money, they might be a con man. So you get the psychopaths who are into conning and deceiving others, including embezzling funds or whatever. Then you get people who are the bullies, and they're more after the power that comes with that. And I think that in the case of Donald Trump, for example, a lot of his behaviour would be a bullying kind of behaviour. He appoints people and then he publicly sacks them over Twitter and says, for example, he said recently about a particular person he appointed, oh, Obama sacked him and I sacked him too and I should have sacked him a lot sooner. You know, doing this very publicly kind of thing, it's that bullying kind of aspect. But when it boils down to it, people can still follow through with some goal over a long period of time but they're trying to achieve that goal as quickly and easily as possible at using other people in the process by learning what buttons to push what what strings to pull and so a number of people will go from one workplace to another they might get caught out after a certain period of time but then often they'll pop up somewhere else changing their life story changing their history that they take in people with that For example, they might falsify their CV. Apparently about 15% of people's CVs have some false information on it. Or with psychopaths, it'll be a lot more than 15%. So they can falsify information or histories and tell people in a sense what might impress them. And that helps them achieve things. But they're not really after the deeper, lasting relationships because they don't have that empathy or that deep interest in emotional connection with other people so they can come across as shallow and superficial and a little bit empty in some ways. You can wonder what's happening at the level of their soul, so to speak. They don't seem to have so much depth to them as people. And the more you get to know them, the more the little inconsistencies might show up. And different people have quite different impressions of them, perhaps, depending on how close they are to them or what use they are to them. It's interesting talking about Trump as well because I heard a quote from Trump directly during the week where he said, money was never a big motivation for me except as a way to keep score. And you sort of think, hold the phone a little bit. There is some serious kind of narcissism and power dynamics going on in that man's head. It is a real worry, isn't it? And there's a classic example of someone having a lot of charisma. And as they say, people who are psychopathic tend to put on a good show. And dare I say, in America, generally in their culture, including their politics and their political system, they're interested in a show. 
There's a lot about performance and I suppose there's Hollywood and all that kind of thing. There is an aspect of American culture you, you think might respond a little bit more to that. And Trump puts on a fantastic show. That's why he loves to have these large rallies and all the rest of it. But what you tend to get also with senior executives who have psychopathic tendencies, they will present brilliantly at interviews so well that people might even offer them the job before they've gone through their due diligence that they'd normally do with other people because they're so convinced that this person is the perfect position for the role because psychopaths are very good at presenting themselves as the perfect leader, the perfect manager, dare I say, you know, the ideal president for the time, but also a perfect relationship partner before it turns out they've fleeced all their partner's funds. Or once they've got in a committed relationship, they start acting controlling and they start controlling the other person's contacts with their friends and, and they get jealous of people's contact with others and they might even escalate not just emotionally aggressive you know, behaviour, but they might become physically aggressive. They might cut off people's access to financial funds and act in ways that are very belittling to the other person so that they're feeling very unconfident about themselves and find it hard to leave because they think it's all their own fault, that kind of thing. And I'm talking about this in a more extreme way. Now, many people, unfortunately, can have controlling behaviours towards others in the workplace or in relationships, but this is where there is a lack of empathy. The person's really out for themselves, and the time they show consideration to other people is more in ways of manipulating them for what they can get rather than truly empathising with the other person. I'm picking up as well from what you're saying there too that potentially it's a lack of remorse as well that comes from that lack of empathy. And, and I read recently by Mark Singer, a guy who wrote in The New Yorker, described Donald Trump as an existence unmolested by the rumbling of a soul. And I think it's an eloquent way to put the fact that it just seems that he doesn't have a conscience. And one thing that I found interesting talking about this and having to think about it during the week is there's the book Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky. It's a very famous book. And that book is essentially about Raskolnikov, the young fella who makes the decision to kill someone, essentially justifies it to himself that this will be for the good of everyone he thinks everyone will agree with him and so he goes ahead and does it but then he realizes that being a human essentially is the notion of the story that once you actually go ahead and do that once you go through the act of taking someone's life everything changes and he's completely gripped by guilt he's unable to go on essentially because of the guilt that comes with doing that i wonder if the character of Raskolnikov in Crime of Punishment is almost an example of someone who isn't a psychopath. In terms of there may be a range of people throughout society for a range of reasons who commit bad acts, who commit horrible things, but is maybe the remorse that they feel afterwards and the way that they're able to conceptualise the damage of what they've done, could that also be another clue as to whether or not someone's a psychopath? Yes, it is, because, as you say, psychopaths tend to lack remorse, whereas people can engage in antisocial acts and afterwards still feel a pang of conscience and feel that, you know, they'd done wrong. Actually, this is one of the differences between psychopaths and sociopaths. There's a lot of overlap. But something about sociopaths is they might be people who've grown up in a subculture that encourages, for example, criminal behaviour. So they might be deceitful and they might be 
callous. They might even shoot people or steal or whatever, but they still might have a code and empathy in their relationships with other family members, for example. Like outsiders, they might mistreat terribly and all the rest of it, or their victims they might mistreat. But by the same token, it's more that they've been influenced by their social milieu in a certain kind of way. And so it's also sometimes said that sociopaths have a bit of conscience. Now, maybe not as strong as the average person, but psychopaths will tend not to have conscience. They'll be more concerned about having got caught. Even then, they're just concerned for themselves and what impact it had from them. They're not really concerned about their victims or whether they've done the wrong thing in a certain way. And another distinction is with antisocial personality disorder. Now, antisocial personality disorder is a psychological term for a personality pattern where the person has often engaged in criminal behaviour, but it might be deceitful acts and lying, but it certainly can include things like embezzling or assault and things like that. And with antisocial personality disorder, it's when people have shown antisocial behaviour at least by the age of 15. And they might be impulsive and aggressive and not concerned about others' safety. And so often people, again, will have a less developed conscience But by the same token, it's not like psychopaths where there's just that focus on themselves rather than regard for others. And so it's it's said that of people in prisons, for example, there might be 15 to 20% of them who might be psychopaths. But they've they've all shown antisocial behaviour in certain ways. So yes, this notion of conscience and remorse is an important aspect of it as well. Well, it's interesting you spoke about sociopathy there because that was actually going to be my next question. And it seems to me from what you're describing there that there's an element to which being a psychopath, psychopathy is kind of an individual thing. It's when kind of one person's psychology goes bad. But then is sociology then when, for example, a culture kind of goes bad in that way? And so people are almost able to, on a small level, maintain some of their individual identity, which is where that empathy comes from potentially whereas with a psychopath i wonder if because they only identify with that individual identity there's no room for empathy in that yes i think of it a bit more that way so if we think for example of hitler and the second world war well there's so many i suppose supporters that he had or other people who were doing his bidding and that's what they call a certain type of psychopath a puppet master That's when they can really influence large numbers of people to act in antisocial kind of ways. But those people who act in those ways that might seem pretty, well, antisocial, that might be more of a sociopathic kind of thing. So I imagine that many of Hitler's associates we might think of as part of that sociopathic pattern. Very low regard. Well, no empathy for people outside their group. But they might well have felt some empathy for their comrades so to speak well i'm interested now in just painting a little bit more of a picture of i suppose how psychopaths act in everyday life as i mentioned before chatting to you about this i had a bit of a caricature of you i think of psychopaths in terms of it is this kind of true crime aspect of when people are a psychopath they commit these atrocities so If we delve into the more everyday aspect of how psychopaths behave and how they show up in everyday life, what does that look like in a way that our listeners may be able to relate to? Okay, now if we start with the notion that the person is on about 
what they can get for themselves in virtually any social or interpersonal situation. So how are they going to come across at first? They're going to be charming, maybe somewhat self-confident, seem somewhat persuasive, influential in certain kind of ways. Now, they might come across as too good to be true, but by the same token, they might be completely convincing, but they might show many positive qualities to us. And so we can understand how someone gets in a relationship with someone who ends up fleecing them of all their money or using that friendship to help them get advantage in some way. The person could be very charming. But then as time goes on, there might be a few more cracks appear. And it might be that there's more conflict around the person in some ways. There might be hints that they're maybe being a bit opportunistic in some ways. And other people are feeling a bit aggrieved toward them. We might not feel aggrieved towards them. They might be treating us very well, it seems. But you notice a little bit more conflict around them. Then it might also come up they're a little bit impulsive in some ways. Like it might be the way they show their anger. Or they do something which seems indiscreet. But when they're picked up on that, they've always got an excuse for it. A way of explaining it. They're not really taking it on board because they don't accept responsibility so much. They've got some excuse or reason. So there might be this impulsive behaviour, risk-taking behaviour. If they make a mistake, they'll tend to cover up for it or blame someone else for it or have some kind of excuse that sounds plausible at the time kind of thing. But what at first might seem like a person having positive traits, including in leadership, like they're confident and they're courageous and they've got a lot of energy and they're action-oriented – After a while, you might think, no, wait a minute, some of this is seeming a bit flaky. That's not how that person ought to be acting in that situation. They shouldn't be bawling out their colleagues the extent to which they do. Hey, look, in this work setting, like you said, hey, look, they've got all these people walking on eggshells around them. A number of people are leaving their team or requesting to be outside of their team. Or a person in a relationship with them is feeling quite controlled, but they don't feel they can talk much about it to anyone else because they need to be secretive, partly because they're concerned about reprisals if they say something about the other person's behaviour. So what happens over a period of time, you notice more that the person is talking the walk of how they might be in a relationship or how effective they can be in a certain role or they might be talking the walk of a leader and what they're going to do and showing this high vision and ambition and things like that, but they're not good at following through with long-term plans. They don't like the tedious effort, long-term effort, to put something into place. So they're looking for more a quicker way around it by manipulating others, for example. So what happens over a period of time is you see, for example, in work settings, the person might present well, but they have poorer performance. And that especially shows up over a period of time. Poorer performance and especially problems with teamwork. They're not interested in teamwork because of that individual focus that they have. I even wonder about that in terms of Trump, when he came in as president, people commented that he was not appointing people to all these very important positions for months and months on end. I think that's part of the pattern. Because it's not really the interest in getting a whole team working in concert together. It's more the opportunities you can make that are ahead of you just now. And then the more time goes on, the more the person comes across as egotistical, having a sense of entitlement, being selfish in relationships, being controlling, and then ultimately maybe being callous, being vindictive, 
when you're not no longer such use to the person, they might change the way they appear. Or once they've been put into a job or been promoted, that might be when they become micromanaging and over-controlling and belittling others because they've got enough power to get away with it now while still maybe sucking up to their bosses or whatever. So in other words, these things will follow a pattern of someone looking to use us at first sight. First, they're gauging us, they're assessing us, they're getting a sense of how they might use us to their ends. Then there's a stage where people might be manipulating us or manipulating someone else. And then some people might be concerned about that person's behaviour while others think they're fantastic. And then there tends to be a stage afterwards where the person's abandoned by the psychopath. In other words, they're no longer of use to them and then they might turn. More angry, more rageful, tell them you're fired, whatever it might be. And in relationships, people can be left high and dry when the person abandons them. One thing that's amazing with psychopaths in relationships too is sometimes the person who's been fleeced still really misses the person because they're still sucked in by that initial charming story. The way they perceive the person has been so influenced by, well, getting sucked in in the first place. But in the long run, people tend to feel fleeced, let down, used and abused. It's interesting hearing you describe that there. And it seems to me a little bit from what you're saying that there seems to be a notion that psychopaths will initially command respect and then they'll demand respect. So they might be all sort of charming at first and you kind of go, oh, this person's incredible in certain ways. But then after a while, if you don't hold up that same level of admiration, it might turn to a little bit more of a, how dare you slight me for not respecting me in that same way sort of thing. You might tend to feel their wrath a little bit more. And it's interesting, I came across an interview during the week with this guy, Paul Bernardo, his name is, and I'll pop it up on the podcast page at chrismackey.com.au slash podcast for anyone who's interested in watching it because it's a fascinating example of a psychopath in work. And basically, it's a police interview of this guy and you see him just sort of trying to kind of snake his way around and defend himself and slimily dodge all of the questions that the detectives are putting to him. And when you read later on what this guy did, it's bewildering to see that he's able to act in this way. Everything they say to him, he's always one step ahead. He's got an answer for why he did this and why this is presented in that way, even when it seems quite far-fetched. But it's the way that he comes out with it so quickly, so naturally, you kind of think there's no way anyone would be able to create that narrative in their head and be able to sell it so confidently. So I will pop that one up on the podcast page, but it is a fascinating insight, I think, into the way that psychopaths seem to work because they just have a completely different modus operandi to the rest of us. And I wonder a little bit if you could even give us a little bit of a sense of that modus operandi in terms of the ways that they seem to influence people like that. Okay, I reckon we get some clues from some of the recent brain science on this because they look at what's different about a psychopath's brain functioning compared to others. And one of the differences is psychopaths compared to other people have less activity in parts of their brain and smaller parts of their brain to do with emotional processing. So they're not so much relating to other people emotionally, processing their emotions, feeling empathy, pick up on other people's emotions. But what do they react to more? There's more activity and larger parts of their brain associated with what we call reward and its anticipation. 
So it'd be like dopamine circuits. You're like, how can you get something to reward you? How can you get a payoff here? So rather than dealing with things in terms of emotions or everyday situations, they're thinking in terms of payoffs. Now, there's something else that comes up as well. In certain situations, people are using parts of their brain to deal with a certain challenge. They're using their emotional reward processing. So again, they're looking at how a situation turns out, but using their emotions. But in those situations, psychopaths are using more cognitive reward processing. So they're thinking about how they might get a reward and also parts of their brain to do with semantic language. This is the gift of the gab, like being a step ahead, like right on the spot being able to come up with words that help them get an advantage out of a situation. Rather than dealing with it emotionally, including dealing with any uh, guilt or regret for making a mistake or concern about how their behaviours affected other people, they're tuning in to what can I say and do to get an advantage in this situation myself. And if you imagine that someone's practised that so much that those parts of their brain are larger because of that kind of practice. And it might be a little bit of a chicken and egg situation, but I suspect it's partly from maybe there's an initial change biologically that way, and maybe it's further developed with practice. But if people's brains are different in terms of looking at how can I get something extra out of this situation using language compared to feelings, well, it just shows that that's likely to be more part of their bent. So in other words... How they're operating, they're sizing up the situation. They're thinking, what can I say or do to influence this person in front of me right now? How can I charm them or what's something I can say that influences them or what's an excuse I can pick up that might sound the most plausible or how can I throw someone else under the bus and blame them for what's happened or come up with some other excuse or say something deceptive that misleads other people to escape responsibility. It's that planning, problem-solving, if you like, thinking on your feet about how you can do something for your own advantage, ignoring that aspect of how it might impact on other people. Well, that's interesting there, talking about the makeup of the brain, because that suggests that there's something similar between all psychopaths in that sense. It's not as if it's just one individual who, in their own way, goes bad. It is more that they have a different way of problem solving in a certain situation they literally don't have the certain emotions to process certain things so I wonder if then there's maybe even some tactics or some common things that we can look out for that psychopaths employ or that they look to use as a certain tactic to get under our skin in certain ways Yes, there are certain patterns and they're described very well by Robert Hare and Paul Babiak in Snakes in Suits and they describe the sequence of messages or the key messages that psychopaths might give to influence other people. First, and it's part of this charm offensive, they've got ways of conveying to someone else, I like you, I like you just as you are. So buttering people up in a certain way. Then another message that they follow up with is, I'm like you. No, look, we're kind of the same. I can't help but think in Trump's example that when he talks about, I'm not a politician, let's drain the swamp. He's kind of like saying to a whole lot of voters, hey, I'm not really a politician, I'm like you. I'm going to fix up this problem that there's been with our leadership. So I like you and I'm like you. Then it's, your secrets are safe with me. And that might be partly that the person does divulge a 
hard luck story about their earlier life or they confide in the person in a certain way, but they're not looking to do that to build a relationship for the sake of feeling closely connected with someone so much, they're more doing it to help the other person feel more at ease of sharing secrets with them and showing more of their own personal motivations and reactions that makes them easier to manipulate by the psychopath. Actually, in Trump's example, I wonder if an example of that is when he said, proud boys, stand back and stand by. And then later on he said, I don't know who the proud boys are. Now, apparently, a group that can use very aggressive kind of tactics in certain kind of ways, and at one level, Trump is disowning knowledge about them, but another, he's signalling an interest in them, an engagement with them kind of thing. And I think that's a way that, by saying he doesn't know about them, it's a way of kind of communicating with them and keeping it like a secret and adding to the sense of, trust or the feeling of allegiance that they might have toward him and then the final message is i'm the best partner i'm the best boss or i'm the best leader for you and that's where the person might have a grandiose picture that they look to sell in a certain way so they can gain people's trust by finding the things that push their buttons or pull their strings and i would suggest even at a national political level maybe can suss out some ways of conveying messages that act to motivate different groups to support them in certain ways. But yeah, the I like you, I'm like you. Imagine someone deceiving someone else in a relationship, looking to become close to them, perhaps to deceive them or take their money or be a parasite and live off them in certain ways. Then your secrets are safe with me. I'm the best partner for you. So afterwards, naturally, a person might feel completely foolish or duped or thought, how could I have been taken in by that person? The story was just so good to be true. But we've got to factor in just how charming psychopaths can be. We can't underestimate a psychopath's charm. You mentioned Robert Hare there. I found it really interesting during the week to hear that when Robert Hare conducted his research, He interviewed hundreds of psychopaths who'd done some horrible things. And what he did was he videotaped each of the interviews. And he was, you know, obviously one of the world's most prominent experts on psychopaths. And he made the comment that even when he was interviewing all these people, he believed them at the time and he felt the influence of their charm completely. But it was only when he went back and watched the interviews afterwards that he could see the point at which the conversation derailed. He could see the point at which he went, hold on, this is actually not what it seems here. But it's really interesting that with all of his education, he wrote most of the textbooks on this sort of stuff, but even he openly admits that he, I suppose, fell for the charm of so many different psychopaths. It's a classic, isn't it? As you say, he'd be like the world's greatest expert in that area and he'd notice at some level the derailment, which means that people are following a certain track and then they suddenly completely change track and then talk about something else. This is something that psychopaths can tend to do if they're thinking of another way of trying to influence or manipulate the people around them. But despite these cues that he would have been objectively aware of, as you're saying, even then he felt taken in. So maybe people don't need to feel too much of a fool if they've been taken in by a psychopath. 
Well, then, is it the case that there are any cues or warning signs in that sense? Because if someone like Robert Hare can't even pick it out and he's sitting face-to-face with someone in what I imagine is a high-security prison, well, what hope do the rest of us have in that sense? Is there anything that we could look for that is potentially a warning sign that there's potentially going to be some greater conflict or trouble that develops down the road if someone continues to behave in a certain way? Yes, well, let's just say if we take a relationship, I think part of it will be if we notice inconsistencies or discrepancies, like over a period of time, starting to think, wait a minute, the person's words aren't really matching their actions. And it doesn't feel so much like a reciprocal or a two-way relationship. might start to feel a little bit used. It might seem an imbalance of, say, resources, the person, what they're contributing financially or something like that might be you know, different from what you think is part of a fair relationship. The person might show signs of more controlling behaviours starting to come in in a certain kind of way. Or you might hear a different story that someone tells you that they've known that person from a previous relationship or situation and you think it's completely different from how you know the person. And you think, oh no, that can't be true. I know this person to be very caring and they're so charming and they clearly they're into me so much kind of thing. But you might be concerned about the sound of that discrepancy. I think the thing is, if there are alarm bells that start to ring, especially if there are other things we've talked about in this podcast that resonate at some level, I think being open to the prospect that a person is being somewhat two-faced or deceitful, allowing our intuition to be there, and then maybe at least being open to noticing the signs of the person acting in a way which was different from their initial presentation, that too-good-to-be-true kind of aspect. Now, if it's in a workplace, there'll be more clues. And these are some of the things that Robert Hare and Paul Babiak talk about. In the workplace, psychopaths will tend to have an inability to form a team well because they have such difficulty collaborating with others. They have an inability to share. They find it hard to tell the truth consistently. They're bending the truth. They find it hard to be modest, tending to be a bit grandiose. They find it very hard to accept blame. They tend to divert responsibility in different ways. It's hard for them to act consistently. So you'll notice that people have discrepant views of them. Even if some people think they're fantastic, And they'll tend to have sucked up to their superiors a bit, so to speak. So the people who'll often notice the warning signs are those who aren't in positions who have such use to them, but they're still in a position to observe how they are in different settings. They find it hard to react calmly or curb anger at times. So it's looking at those things, but then it's particularly looking at over a period of time, How's the person acting or performing in their role over a period of time? Because psychopaths in workplaces present on average even probably a bit better than other leaders. They certainly can present well, but their performance tends to be poor. And especially over time, they get caught out in not following through with good, well-thought-through, long-range plans that bring people together to help enact these kind of plans as a team They tend to fall down in that way and so you get more disgruntled people around them, more people leaving, more discrepant information about them. You might get more complaints than initially they might dismiss but after a while it starts to add up to a picture that you think, well, there's more than a bit of smoke here and there seems to be a bit of fire. So 
One thing I wonder there then is, it seems to me from what you've said today that, for example, in a psychology practice setting, you're much more likely to come across someone who's been the victim of a psychopath or who's been controlled by a psychopath than you are the psychopath in the first place. How often is it that someone will come in and someone will describe some behaviour that's affected them in a certain way and you think, that's a psychopath. How actually prevalent is it that we come across people who are being affected by these people's actions? Okay, there are a couple of main different ways. One way is if people have been in a domestic violence situation. So over the years, I've seen a number of people who are crime victims. And some of those crime victims were victims of domestic violence, where there was usually lots of psychological control and abuse and emotional abuse, as well as financial abuse and physical abuse even. And if the psychopath, someone looked to stand up to them, then they could be more at risk of aggressive behaviour, which is at times why people need to make their escape in secret, need to set it up that they can leave a threatening or bullying relationship and set up some alternative for themselves, or in the past it might be a refuge or some kind of safe house that they go to, or line up some escape, because it can be very dangerous if a psychopath knows that their partner is looking to leave them. But in terms of a psychology practice, a number of people who've suffered from past trauma or post-traumatic stress, sometimes domestic violence is one of those things. Now, sometimes the domestic violence seems that it's a result of, for example, serious alcohol abuse and an anger problem. And the person most often would not be a psychopath in those situations, but sometimes they have been. And where we know of the danger of psychopaths is the number of women who are killed in Australia, about one woman a week killed by a partner or ex-partner. That's a terrible statistic, but quite a proportion of those people are likely to be psychopaths. And they might come across as very convincing at first about how distraught they are about their partner having gone missing and they've gone through some charade about how they've tried to look for their partner and they've got these different stories that sound plausible but afterwards they're things that don't add up. And there'd be a number of prominent cases where that would have happened. And in the news we would have heard about that with, for example, a father who drove children into a dam and they drowned. And it looks deliberate, but having an elaborate excuse around it. Now, not knowing all the details of that story, but that's certainly a psychopathic kind of behaviour and a psychopathic kind of presentation, especially when the person was known to make some comments beforehand that were threatening kind of comments. The other way it comes up in a psychology practice is when people have experienced serious harassment or bullying at work. Now, this doesn't mean that whenever someone says that they've been harassed or bullied at work that they're dealing with a psychopath, because there are people who can be poor at managing their tempers or there can be people in a situation where they've got a very controlling style in the ways that they work and there could be some relatively poor management practices or there could even be some situations where someone was acting in an ineffective way or in a way that was against the interests of an organisation and they were being held accountable and then they might have then said that they were being bullied because they were held to account. But there are some situations where the patterns we've talked about in this podcast can become clear, where a boss's behaviour has been erratic, deceitful, boundary crossing in different ways, rule breaking in different ways, maybe sucking up to their boss, but treating their subordinates dreadfully. And look, I'll mention as an example of that, there was something actually in the paper this week 
And I thought it had an example of the kind of work situations that sometimes lead people to seek psychological help. And this newspaper item talks about a number of staff approaching the newspaper to say about a very senior manager his intimidating behaviour that had led many colleagues to leave the organisation. And his intimidating behaviour apparently often attacking people, leaving them to be in tears, putting in an email that a particular manager was an F-wit. You wouldn't think someone would say that in an email about a colleague or co-worker. But also they say that he manages his subordinate employees by way of bullying, belittling, name-calling and threatening of job security. So I'm reading that from the paper here. They say his behaviour is out of control. And then a number of people said that he was a notorious bully and harasser, but they were too scared to report him. And they made sure they only told the paper about him on conditions of anonymity because they say he was protected by the top. And this tends to happen that someone who has those behaviours, if it's a psychopathic pattern, they've still ingratiated themselves to their employer or their senior and so they can say that they've just been doing their normal managerial thing and these employees haven't accepted it. So in this particular situation, the person was presented with their complaints and he said that some people might be disgruntled because they were uncomfortable with accountability in the workplace. He also dismissed claims he was a bully. That doesn't sound like me. I'm the furthest thing from a bully, he said. Now, you know, I can't say for sure. I'm not saying that that person's definitely a psychopath. But what we can say is that's the kind of pattern of things that tends to show up in a workplace if someone does have psychopathic tendencies. And I think that when there's such serious conflict in a workplace that many people are leaving, many people are disgruntled, and a number of people feel damaged by the interactions with, say, a bully in the workplace, I think it's important that there's some kind of review that looks to see objectively whether the person shows a number of psychopathic type traits because if that's the case, they're not just going to be bullying, they're also going to be deceitful and they're probably not following well through on long-term plans and probably teamwork is going wrong in their area. So then, Dad, what can we do if we come across a psychopath? Because you touched on a little bit earlier in terms of that idea of whether it's the chicken or the egg in some ways. But what I wonder is, are some people just predisposed to being a psychopath? And maybe it seems potentially from what you're saying there that our best course of action is to buffer ourselves from that, to find ways of protecting ourselves from that and where appropriate, make a safe exit. But is it the case that, for example, you can pick up on some of these warning signs some of the stuff that we've been talking about you can pick up that someone potentially has some of these traits and from what you were saying earlier potentially strengthen the part of the brain that is responsible for that side of things a little bit more I'm not you know I'm sure it's not that basic but the notion is can you look to I suppose get these traits out of someone 
Okay, now, one of the things I'll talk about shortly is the kind of characteristics of good leaders and positive cultures and what workplaces, for example, can do to try and encourage these positive cultures where it's more difficult for psychopaths to hold sway. But when it boils down to it, I think that there's a lot that you're saying and you look to buffer yourself from the actions of a psychopath, like what can you do? And the first thing that's best to do in terms of a psychopath, if you can, is avoid contact with them as much as possible. Certainly look to avoid being in situations where they have positions of influence over you. If someone finds themselves in a relationship where they're becoming convinced that their partner's a psychopath, there's some big advantages in thinking of an exit plan or how you might leave. Now, again, I'm talking about more extreme situations, not just if someone has a problem with anger or some controlling behaviour that might be very unfortunate, but there might be very positive things about their, that relationship as well. And the person you know, might really care in different ways and then they might change their behaviour and be motivated to change their behaviour if there's a, a threat of someone leaving, for example. But in serious situations, you look to buffer yourself. Just say if it's a workplace, what can you do? One of the things is to look to document carefully the interactions that concern you. If you feel that you're being harassed or bullied, something along those lines, then the more you can document that objectively, the more helpful that is. It helps if there's support within the organisation. You hope that might be a supervisor or you hope it might be an HR department or at very least other colleagues who can document similar kind of behaviour. Because the more that you can make an objective case that a number of people are concerned about certain kind of behaviours, there's more that you can do that way. And try and make yourself a small target. Look to do your job well. Look to be accountable as much as you can. Look to limit your interactions with a psychopath that give clues as to what you're interested in, what your motives are, that kind of thing. Look to take a lot of the personal side out of it more matter-of-factly Make yourself a small target and be prepared to question what the person's saying and doing and so allow yourself to not trust the person in certain ways. Look, I'll actually mention many years ago at a hospital where I worked, there was a particular leader that many of us thought was showing very harmful behaviours. Some of it was very sneaky and some of it involved what we call dirty tricks. And one of those things was in management meetings, apparently afterwards, he would bully the secretary into changing the minutes to suit his ends. And the secretary was very distressed because she got bullied every week to change the minutes. That's a psychopathic kind of behaviour. This person tended to mistreat his staff that if they didn't do his bidding, he would tend to send them to a part of the hospital or a work role that they didn't want to be in. So as a way of controlling other people. That person in the end, many of us stood up and described the kind of behaviours that were happening and there was a review that followed and he was removed. The unfortunate thing is a later leader also showed psychopathic kind of behaviours but this time in terms of bullying. She would often be angry, directly bullying people in meetings. There was lots of distrust, there was lots of distress and turmoil, a number of people left, many staff were disgruntled. And so that was a situation that was also very harmful in many ways. Now, unfortunately, in that kind of era, which is actually decades ago, in that era, I think many people who got senior positions in psychiatric hospitals, dare I say, especially in the nursing field, 
because there are many staff and competitive positions and so people are more likely to get to the top if they're backstabbers because a lot of people, when there's someone who's a backstabber, will find the heat intense and unpleasant and back off. So a number of people get advancement by creating conflict and division and then as other people back off because it's all too unpleasant, they find ways of getting elevated. And at the time, they'll simultaneously be charming people in positions of power who appoint those to senior positions. And I've seen that happen with a couple of leaders in hospitals that I've worked in. And when we think of this as being a prominent news story this week that I described earlier in the workplaces, unfortunately, this kind of thing happens a lot more than people tend to recognise. And one of the best ways we can deal with it is to call it out as a group. If you look to call it out as an individual, you tend to get done over. And funnily enough, I'll mention, as we talked about in an episode on depression, I mentioned that many years ago, I went through a severe depression and was hospitalised. I might have said something at the time about it relating to hospital politics. Now I can look back and recognise that a lot of my reactions at the time were influenced by dealing with one or two psychopaths in the workplace. So is it the case then that people recognise it in themselves? Like if you were to call out those people for some of these behaviours and sort of say, hold on, that's not normal. You can't be doing this. Is that the sort of thing where people go, do you know what, actually you kind of got me. Like this is something that I struggle with. You know, I don't necessarily connect as well emotionally with people. Or is it more the case that people will get a bit defensive and not look to acknowledge that at all? Okay, I'll go back to that prominent newspaper article that I mentioned this week. And I quote from the paper, He also dismissed claims he was a bully. That doesn't sound like me. I'm the furthest thing from a bully, he said. I think that's probably how people with psychopathic tendencies tend to act. And again, I'm not saying this particular individual is a psychopath. However, I think that there are a number of patterns there that raise the question. And if many of the other characteristics we talked about today are also there then that could fit the pattern of being a psychopath. No, I think people have low insight. I think in being self-serving, people aren't going to believe something about themselves which is going to disadvantage themselves in relation to their motives or how they deal with the situation. They're going to look to escape responsibility. Maybe they're questions of degree. Maybe if someone is caught out early enough and if their tendencies in that direction are mild enough, then maybe someone could be socialised by experience and the messages from other people that, okay, it's not okay to act that way, and at least they'll walk the walk more of acting more pro-socially, even if it's because they know they'll get more of what they want if they do that than if they act anti-socially. But it won't be just from basic internal values and having seen the light and recognising this problem in their behaviour. If the person does gain more insight and change their behaviour, then they probably weren't a psychopath in the first place. Psychopaths are going to mainly respond to circumstances and also the external circumstances. So it's more about setting limits or creating cultures where it's harder for the person to manipulate their environment in the first place rather than leaving it to them getting more insight about their behaviour. You flagged it before, Dad. I think one place to finish that would be a good place to finish is... Well, I guess one thing that I find really interesting about our fascination with whether it be true crime as a book or a podcast topic, this sort of stuff, I think looking at evil or what we consider to be evil, the closest thing that we have to it, 
it can give us a real insight into goodness, into the opposite side of things. And you mentioned it before, talking about poor leadership, but I wonder whether there's anything that you think that we can learn from looking at psychopaths on maybe the negative side of things that we can look at the contrast of that and pull that out and say, hold on, no, these are things that we do want to retain and that is good and that we do want to encourage. Yes, a good point to finish up on because this makes so much difference and we can think of when we've worked in really positive work settings or been in really positive group settings and work with people where it's really uplifting what happens in contrast to working with psychopaths. One is that good leaders are very good at building teams, developing teams. They're interested in everybody in the team in a genuine way. They're emotionally empathic in a genuine way. What does that mean? They're going to be a good listener, genuinely interested in the person and what they have to say, what they have to offer. They're going to be ethical. They're going to walk the walk and they're going to be consistent in their values. They're going to be motivating, but motivating other people also for what other people can get out of the situation, not just from what they can get out of the situation, from what other people on the whole team can get out of the situation. They'll be supportive. And so they're not going to be rigidly demanding they might have high expectations good leaders will have high expectations but it doesn't mean that they expect people to be perfect and they'll be supportive in ways of people reaching their goals they'll be honest and there'll be consistency in their integrity and they'll generally be humble i think of the greatest leaders that i've seen in psychology who are recognized far and wide they tend to be humble people The people who come across as more arrogant are usually not the top leaders in their field. They might be well-known, they might be famous, they might be an expert, but I think humility is a great quality in a leader. It's interesting hearing you say that, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seems to me that the opposite to being a psychopath is being a collaborator. It's looking at how can... The two of us work together in a way where the sum of all parts is going to be greater than the whole. And so I wonder if that can maybe be as well something that we can look at as a way of discouraging psychopathy in certain ways. I was lucky enough recently to hear Keith Ferrazzi speak and he's an incredible person in the world of business and is currently consulting with companies like Verizon and Delta Airlines in America. So huge companies, but he has this concept called co-elevation. And co-elevation is looking at other people and looking, how can we work together in a way where the both of us are going to be elevated greater than had we not worked together sort of thing. And I think this notion, which to me seems to be, there seems to be a real movement towards this way of doing things, whether it be in the podcast industry or other related industries like that, the idea of how can we look to collaborate and build each other up, lift each other up. And to me, encouraging more of that sort of thinking seems that it will discourage some of this psychopathic thinking or at least not allow for some of these psychopaths to be as successful as they have been. Yes, I like what you're saying there about co-elevation and it reminds me of a whole theme of this podcast from the start where we started off looking at character strengths. That whole aspect of positive psychology which has the broad theme that other people matter and one of the main positive psychology exercises being Look at what our top strengths are, and we've talked a lot about the character strengths questionnaire that we can actually fill out and do that to give us an objective indication of what some of our top strengths are, and then look to use our top strengths 
in the service of others as part of a meaningful life. And the corollary of that is whether we're a parent or a co-worker or in any particular situation, considering what might be the top strengths in others around us, looking to notice other people's strengths and what might help other people bring out their top strengths in the service of others. I think, like you say, that's collaboration, looking at the best in ourselves and looking at bringing it out for the benefit of the whole. Like you say, collaboration, teamwork. Oh, thanks for chatting with me about all this today, Dad. As I said to you beforehand, I probably thought that my main interaction with psychopathy was scrolling through the podcast pages or going to a bookshop and seeing what the top books at the moment in the fiction section were. But I think after talking with you today, I think I will even have a bit of a think and there's a couple of people who even stand out who may have displayed a couple of psychopathic traits in my past. So without wanting to label anyone, I'll have a bit of a think about it. That's wise, maybe, not labelling someone. <laughs> and, um, and look, one of the things that might be helpful to people is that there's a website that Robert Hare and Paul Babiak have been involved in, and it's for people who've been affected by psychopaths in the past. And it's a website, www.aftermath-surviving-psychopathy.org. There'll be a link to that on our website page. I'll leave you to mention that, Rowan. But this particular website, if people turn to that, it'll have information that's very relevant for people who've been on the unfortunate end of dealing with a psychopath. Well, yeah, as you said, Dad, www.chrismackey.com.au slash podcast. We'll put up the website, Aftermath Surviving Psychopathy, and we'll also pop up that Paul Bernardo interview as well, because for those interested, it is a stark example of a psychopath in work. So thanks very much for talking with me today, Dad. I look forward to the next one. Good on your own. See you next time.